0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, a new study on polar bears along Hudson Bay's western shore says they can't survive on a land-based diet alone. During times of the year, of course, when there is no sea ice, and those times are getting longer, pickings are getting much more meager for them. The bears surveyed for the study it found may not be able to make it if this continues. So what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen? On our segment, A Little More True Crime, Canadian diplomat Roxanne Dubé is with me to talk about her new book, Understanding at Last. You may remember in March of 2015, Dubé was the newly appointed Canadian Consul General in Miami when her 18-year-old son Jean and 15-year-old son Mark took their mom's car with diplomatic license plates to rob a local drug dealer. Jean and the intended victim were killed. Mark was arrested at the scene and faced the possibility of decades in jail. Dubé was left to try to explain how her sons could have been caught up in such a violent crime. Now, nearly eight years later, she's back in Ottawa with Mark, and her book charts that journey through the courts and how a mother and son got themselves back on track. But first, the small Ontario city of Belleville has declared a state of emergency following a spike in drug overdoses, 17 in 24 hours, including 13 in one afternoon last week it highlights the challenges smaller cities such as belleville face when tackling what is a major nationwide crisis around mental health addiction and homelessness the mayor of belleville joins us to explain but let's start tonight in Belleville, Ontario. I don't know if you've read about this this week and last, but they had to declare a state of emergency in that town of about 55,000, which is just about halfway between Toronto and Kingston, if you're driving along the 401 towards Montreal, just off Lake Ontario, a place I've been to over the years for work and so on. My uncle did his residency in medicine there. It's, It's always been a bit of a tough town, but you know, this time it's having a real go of it. Uh, but let's begin with sort of some of the background here. Today, Canada's housing advocate uh, says the spread of homeless encampments around the country is a national life or death crisis and needs a national response. Mary-José Oul released a report today calling for cities, provinces and the federal government to take responsibility for the deep systemic failures driving the encampment crisis and to work together to fix them.
1: Well, these are human rights violations. Um, that approach
2: will only endanger lives. That approach will erode the trust that people have in the systems that are supposed to be built to help them and support them.
0: Now, one place where this is being felt acutely, believed or not, is the city of Belleville. A uh, mayor, Neil Ellis, as I mentioned, declared a state of emergency after crews were called to 17 overdoses in just 24 hours in that city. 13 of them in the space of just two hours last Wednesday afternoon. The move was prompted not just by the overdoses, none of which proved fatal, fortunately, but that now all too familiar trifecta, as Mary-José Ul was mentioning, homelessness, mental illness, and addiction. The mayor spoke to the crisis yesterday.
3: The magnitude, these issues, and pressure being felt by our emergency services have reached a breaking point for them and the community. The city commits almost $20 million of tax dollars Per year to homeless efforts, these programs and services have not been supplemented by provincial grants or funding and in many cases are outside the regular scope of services the city is mandated to provide.
0: Now, a reminder that this huge societal problem right across the country has become a really big problem for Smaller cities, right? Belleville, of course, is not alone. If you look at just overdose deaths, period, in BC, for example, the highest rate of deaths was in the northern health region. So, a smaller, you know, a place of, in the province where there are smaller cities. And Alberta Lethbridge saw a record number of OD deaths in 2023, with nearly 100. And health officials in Quebec City are now warning about a synthetic opioid 25 times more powerful than fentanyl. Haley Thompson is with the Toronto Drug Checking Service.
2: Currently, we lose approximately 22 Canadians a day to this crisis, um, and uh, the supply is only becoming more contaminated.
0: Again, you see that trifecta of homelessness, mental illness, and addiction, and a lot of communities are struggling with it now. And again, as Belleville's mayor was pointing out, smaller cities just have far fewer resources to cope with the huge challenges they now face. So he joins me now. Belleville Mayor Neil Ellis is with us. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
3: Thank you for having me
0: today. Tell me a bit about about how this. I mean, I think a lot of people are just waking up to this uh, because of the national news coverage that it's getting. But it, it it must have been building up for quite some time. Where did this all begin? Where did you begin to have this this issue with 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 well, certainly with with drugs, right?
3: Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not an issue, uh, that's, uh, a Babel issue. It's, it's basically an, an Ontario issue and a Canadian issue. And when I uh, speak with all my mayors uh, around Ontario, they have the same issue and it's, it's the three issues. It's, uh, Uh, drug addiction, it's mental health and it's homeless and when you look at smaller communities uh, that surround us like Bancroft, Deserano and Napanee they all have homeless and they they have the same issues uh, maybe on a smaller scale because they have a smaller population Uh, but when you go to the uh, to the west of us, uh, you have Peterborough, and Peterborough has, uh, uh, you know, suffered the same thing, and their homeless number is, uh, we're around 200, and they're approaching almost double that because of the size of the city. And And I had a mayor from Kingston today that uh, uh, Mayor Patterson called me, and, and uh, you know, we talked about the same issues, and I think, you know, with happened uh, last week because we had... Uh, a bad batch of, of drugs in and they come into other communities was we had so many in one hour and it was 13 people that, uh, that did have a, a drug o- uh, overdose. Uh, you know, my heart goes out to them. We, there was no fatalities, which are EMS, uh, emergency services, uh, you know, they're stressed, uh, but they got through it. And it's not a battle issue. It's, 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 it's small town, Ontario. It's small town uh, uh, across Canada and, you know, this has magnified, uh, I think, to, you know, the governments that, hey, there's something needs to be done because it's it's getting worse and worse. And I don't see a solution uh, of anything coming forward.
0: When you when you I'm sure you spend time in Toronto and see what this looks like or Ottawa and see what this looks like on a bigger city scale. Um, I think people have woken up in this country to the fact that this is not just a big city problem far from it. and hasn't been for quite some time. But what are the differences, do you think, when you talk to mayors who have bigger populations? What's the difference between a community of your size and how this impacts? You said 200 people. That's not a lot of people. When 13 people have overdoses, chances are everybody within your city administrations bumped into them at some point. Right. You know each other.
3: Yeah. And I uh, that's a, a good question. I was out uh doing a ride along with police on Friday night and uh you know the officers basically uh, know the names of uh, 90% of of the unhoused here in Belleville, and uh, a lot of the officers now it's it's not policing it's about mental health and uh you know a, a small town belleville I think it uh we have less than you know obviously uh, other cities but it's concentrated in more of a downtown area because of of the size of the city.
0: Yeah. Uh, and and just the impact of it, too. And you talked about all the, the, these accumulating problems in a place like Belleville. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but are most of the people local or most of the people that are unhoused on your streets? People who sort of grew up in and around that part of that. part um, of Ontario?
3: So it's Hastings County that uh, administrates our uh, unhoused money. Right. And their stats are 66 percent uh, around there are from the region. So right. not necessarily Belleville, but, uh, uh, you know, Bancroft, that whole area is the social service network is here. So you're looking at about 34 percent are from uh, parts of unknown. I assume a lot are out of bigger centers, uh, and that's the ratio as of, of last year when they did uh, the survey.
0: Right, which which is always one of those traits because I think oftentimes people assume this is an imported issue around drug drug abuse and so right. on, but oftentimes it's not. It's sort of it's sort of a the the it's a sign of something that's happening right across the country but it's very much a local problem what are your struggles with trying to cope with it because i think a lot of smaller centers are having similar struggles trying to figure out um how to tackle this issue i mean listen big cities are having huge amounts of trouble trying to tackle this issue but smaller centers are also having trouble with resourcing and
3: so on um I, you know i think the the biggest issue is um where we go from today and uh, as i said before in in 2014 when i left we we didn't have any uh, in eight years. It's grown to uh, 200. Uh, will it grow next year? It, it is going to grow next year, and it's going to grow the year after. And that's every community's faced with that, unless we get the proper treatment. And you know, uh, detox centers, uh, things like uh, you know, the wraparound services and, and the medical treatment. It's it's not going to solve or um, it, it make the numbers go down. Now with uh, having these facilities and the help, it's not going to solve homelessness, uh, all of homelessness, because you know 25% is, uh, is the norm that don't want to be treated and don't want to live in uh, in housing. So uh, this is problem is going to stay with us forever, and, and that's what I see. What I'm trying to uh, stop or trying to get around, I, I don't want our city looking like uh, cities in the States when you see Philadelphia and, and bigger cities. It's yeah. 10 after 10 after 10. So, you know, do things in policy like uh, a guaranteed or basic income, does does that help? Uh, there are people that don't have health issues or don't have drug addictions that are on the street. People like you and I that maybe have had bad luck, uh, a divorce, uh, loss of uh, loss of job. Uh, because housing is so expensive. So it, it rolls back to, uh, you know, a basic uh, apartment. If you can find one here is, is north of 13 or $1,400. Yeah. How do you afford a house when you're, you know, on, on, uh on disability for a thousand dollars a month. And, um, you know, there's talk of, and even, uh, prime ministers from all parties, uh, our past prime ministers agree that maybe we need to, to look to get people above the, the poverty line on a basic income, you know, they're still working and not topped up, uh, you know, housing first, they they wouldn't be on the streets. And there's people that are living in their cars. And, the, you know, people, they they are, they could be your brother, they could be your mother, they could be your best friend. And, and they're not addicted to drugs. They've just had bad luck. Belleville Mayor Neil Ellis is with us this half hour. Last week, community declared
0: a state of emergency after they had 17 overdoses in just 24 hours, which is, seems remarkable. Again, bigger cities have a lot more, but so concentrated. Uh, that must have been. I mean, just reading that, I mean, that's a big decision to declare a state of emergency because, of course, you know people are going to pay attention to and ask why. But you must have. Uh, it must have really. I, I don't want to use the word "spooked," but it must have shocked people that uh, just how devastating that day was.
3: Um, I don't know if it was shocked. I, I guess my uh, reasons, um, in order when you declare a state of emergency, it lines you up for funding. Mm-hmm. And part of it is about funding. And uh, funding, you know, not, not all funding will solve the issues. Um, but how do we wake up the provincial government? Uh, we're looking at uh, o- overdoses here. We had 90 in, in one uh, one week in uh, in November uh you know survival on that i think we had one uh you know fortunately uh, even one death is is too many but uh we had one um but other cities when you read about kingston and oshawa they've had tainted uh, uh, the tainted drug supply also yeah um, and when you look at it part of it is it, it's not going to get any better so the o- opioid crisis is here and, and it's affecting all towns all streets and it is a crisis.
0: In terms of the funding, I mean, you talk to your to your to other mayors and other communities, some bigger like Kingston, some some of the same size. What is it that you need? What do you think would be a good first step uh, for this you know, in terms of in terms of the facilities that you need built and the money you need to help build them?
3: And I think you know the the short term is um, is we need to we we've, we've got a plan to hire more emergency services. Uh, it's been a tax on our budget so help with that our, our emergency services uh, and that's the EMS which is uh, paramedics and which is police and fire it's been hard to fill positions and it, it looks at uh, every budget is well over 10 percent um, and and I think I said before when uh, you know we are providing uh, well to almost close to 70 percent of of, uh, you know, the daily needs of people and we only get nine cents on the tax dollar and we're asked to provide housing, we're asked to uh, solve this problem, we can't. And uh, as I say, we need uh, a plan. And I think Ontario, it has to be an Ontario plan to solve or at least uh, stop the flow of of uh, people that end up being in poverty and homelessness. Yeah, because when you look at
0: the numbers, two hundred out of fifty five thousand—that's still relatively small, of course—and it feels like it's a it's a problem that could still be tackled. And you're just worried that it that it gets proportionally bigger, but it still seems like it's taking off up a lo- awful lot of your time and budget for a relatively small portion of the population that's Eesh. obviously in need, right? I mean, we know that.
3: Yeah, and and I say that every day. You know, we have. Uh, 200 un- unhoused, and uh, you know what what number is is causing the problem? Not all 200. Is it? A, I'm guessing it's a small number from you know anywheres from around uh, under 100, and I would say in the in the 50 range um, that are 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 you know not the that are down and out, I guess, and more mm-hmm. addicted than than the others. And but it sends a message that everybody is in the same uh, situation, which is is not true. Um so again, uh it's gotta go back to to housing first, and I can't say that enough.
0: Right. And and again, I, I suppose this is in many ways the state of emergency is a red flag too to to the province to say, listen, if you let this go any longer, it's just gonna get worse. As you pointed out earlier, word it is just gonna get worse, it won't get better.
3: You're correct. And when you look to other cities, and, and I look uh as I say, I look south of the states. Um there's uh, it's, it's, you know, majorly worse than, than what we have it. Uh, there's other drugs that are coming that are, are worse than fentanyl. They've hit Philadelphia, they've hit Vancouver and, you know, they're going to, they're going to go this way and they're going to be in every municipality and we need to get prepared for that.
0: Well, Mayor Ellis, I appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a good one. This half hour, we're going to talk about Trust. Um, because we've just been talking about some of the major issues that cities right across Canada are facing right now, communities right across the country are facing uh, in terms of homelessness, uh, the housing affordability crisis, uh, the opioid crisis, the mental health crisis, all of them sort of combining into one issue for many communities. And it's you know, a difficult issue to tackle, an expensive one as well. And every year, this one group uh, called, called Proof Strategies does a trust index. And I always find it really interesting because they base it on the previous year's findings. So they sort of have a long track record of where we're all going with the way we think about things. Needless to say, and unsurprisingly, Canadians are stressed out about the economy. That is probably something we could have all predicted. One of the things I found more interesting, not because you wouldn't know it anecdotally, when you talk to people about politics, is that only about or fewer than 25% think governments can make housing more, more affordable. In fact, most people, only 17% trust politicians. That's a really low number. Bruce McClellan is a proof chair. He says high anxiety
1: isn't a good companion for
0: trust in institutions.
1: Anxiety translates into many other things, including lower trust. If people don't feel like they're getting a, a fair deal, if people are feeling uh, that they're not advancing or getting ahead or taking care of their families, they start to lose trust. Indeed.
0: Now, this survey measures trust in political leaders, businesses, uh, the media, bankers, scientists, you name it. The survey asked about uh, 1,500 adults over 10 days in early January about these questions. And economic pain, the anxiety around the economy and just our own personal situations financially is higher than even anxiety around COVID-19, higher than it ever was, as a matter of fact. And here's here are some Giveaway numbers. Trust in the prime minister has plummeted in the last 12 months from 36% believed he would do the right thing a year ago to 25% now. That is low. Oddly enough, opposition leaders, not much better. 32% trust Pierre Polyev. 32% trust Jugmeet Singh. So right across the board, politicians aren't being trusted these days. Again, uh, Bruce McClellan, I thought I'd invite him on to sort of elaborate on some of what he found. Proof Strategies founder and chair Bruce McClellan joins me now. Uh, Bruce, thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to chat.
0: I mean, reading through it, the thing that struck me the most is it's sort of, sort of a lack of trust index, not in all places, but in many areas. Um, people out there aren't, aren't feeling too much confidence in things these days, You know, if I can use that term so loosely.
1: Well, you're right, Ben. These are brutal times for trust. There's just so many things combining to work against trust. You know, polarized politics, economic anxiety, Deliberate disinformation campaigns by uh, various forces, social media algorithms that reinforce ideas rather than, you know, giving people balanced information. There's just a lot going on that makes trust challenging. Um, There are some cases of trust rising, but unfortunately, you're right, we're seeing a number of areas where trust is falling.
0: You've done this in the past, obviously. One of the things that, of course, stands out, I think we know this all anecdotally, the economic anxiety that exists out there. But how did it ref- how did it turn up in this in this survey? Because it really was kind of the headline of this was just how acute that
1: that anxiety is now. Well, we know that uh, economic comfort fuels trust. If people are not feeling economic security, if they're feeling threatened or they can't make end, ends meet, they're not going to feel very trusting towards institutions and the economy and the, the economic system. And indeed, what we've found is that compared to the pandemic, when we knew that, you know, just under half of Canadians were reporting anxiety and stress, now it's gone up to two thirds of Canadians feeling anxiety and stress about the economy. So we think that really underscores the significance of how people are feeling right now. And I would add that it's, it's two thirds of the population as a whole, but it's three quarters of women report feeling anxiety and stress about the economy. So that's a huge cloud hanging over people and definitely weighting down trust.
0: It's I thought it was quite astounding that people felt more anxious uh now than they did at the height of the pandemic and especially women of course because it does say a lot about the overall mood when people when that many people are feeling that worried about about something so fundamental. As economic, because I mean that—that's essentially everything, right? If you look at it in terms of what that touches on, uh, economic anxiety is anxiety essentially about just about everything that you do each day.
1: Absolutely, it's very all-encompassing and widespread. And we're seeing some other concerns in our study where we we ask people about the values that make up Canada and how do they think Canada is doing at living up to those values. And we've actually seen a decline in the last three years of how people are scoring Canada. And these are on things like economic opportunity, access to education, freedom, safety. Particularly women are giving Canada a lower score for performing on our core values. And values have a huge link to trust. So if if you don't think you have shared values with something, you're going to have a hard time trusting it.
0: It's interesting when we, I mean, I think there's a lot of criticism of people sort of throw around doomsayer language like broken. But if you were, according to your survey, at least, there is a significant proportion of people out there. If you ask them, is the country going in the right direction? The answer is clearly no.
1: Well, you're right. There is a lot of concern. And until um, people can get more economic comfort, it's going to hang over all the areas of trust. That said, you know, we are seeing some areas of trust stability or even trust increase. In the last few years, in our research, trust in the RCMP has increased. Trust in the Canadian military has increased. Trust in the Bank of Canada, which is you know playing a prominent role in the fight against inflation, has stable trust. And um, you know they're clearly doing a pretty good job of of administering difficult medicine with higher interest rates, but still holding trust from people who understand what they're doing is, is necessary and, and well thought out.
0: Perhaps it's not a surprise that in insecure times, people do have trust in institutions that are familiar and longstanding, even if there is an attempt uh, out there to sort of undermine the the, uh, the sort of the reputation of some of these institutions, that people do lean on institutions in times of insecurity.
1: Certainly, uh, a familiar institution does uh, usually have some residual trust that, that can uh, last through a crisis. Although the Bank of Canada is not exactly something that people spend a lot of time thinking about but this year, you know, they're telling us again that the trust is stable. One area that's, I think, really a canary in the coal mine is that this year we've noticed, for the first time, a decline in trust in the Canadian healthcare system. Right. You know, all through the pandemic, when obviously healthcare was was on everybody's mind, we saw very strong trust. The, the trust in the healthcare system was strong and stable. Trust in doctors and scientists increased during the pandemic, um, but this year we've seen a six-point drop in trust in the Canadian healthcare system. And we think that's directly linked to what we're seeing playing out in the news, which is, you know, doctor shortages, delays for uh, emergency room access, backlogs of surgeries. Uh, there's something not working in the healthcare system, and Canadians are expressing concern through our trust index.
0: Yeah, I've I gathered part of that, too, is that just people within the healthcare system have been sounding the alarm. And I think when they start sounding the alarm, people on the outside start to lose trust, start to start to wonder what's going on. If, if those who are responsible and on the front lines start to say, we have a problem here.
1: Well, and particularly given that some of those people are medical doctors who are among the most highest trusted figures in our society something like five times more trusted than politicians.
0: Founder and chair of Proof Strategies, Bruce McClellan is with us this half hour where we're talking about the trust index for this year that is out. It's always an interesting read because they've surveyed um, more than a thousand people, asked them about things they trust and things they have less trust in and some interesting trend lines, economic anxiety is clearly one of the things that is uh, really hurting. Well, everyone is feeling it across the country. Three quarters of women surveyed, uh, two thirds of all people surveyed, obviously. And that's up. I mean, that's higher than, than than anxiety over the pandemic was at the height of the pandemic. So we can see just how much pocketbook issues are front of mind for absolutely everyone these days. Um, there's been some value, some trust has gone up for some institutions, uh, but really one of the things that stood to me, Bruce, was, you know, we look to our politicians to be able to fix these big societal issues, or at least us in the right direction on these things, and it, it looks like people's faith in the ability of politicians, period, and even sort of provincial leaders and those federal leaders, the prime minister and those hoping to be prime minister, is not high at all.
1: It's a very discouraging picture when it comes to trust in politicians, Ben. Uh, the, as a category, uh, trust in politicians has reached a new low in our nine years of tracking at 17%. Uh, this is, you know, when you get into the teens, this is some of the depths of trust. We also see that, uh, you know, premiers are flat, about 33% trust for the for across the country as an average. And our prime minister, he uh, continues to be in, in trust descent. Um, he's been losing trust now for several years, going from 46% in 2018 now down to 25% this year. The poor guy can't catch a break. He, he loses trust when he comes to work and he loses trust when he goes on vacation. Um, alternatively, the opposition leaders um, are not really growing that much. Um, the leader of the Conservative Party, the leader of the NDP party, they're tied at, at only at 32 percent trust. People are really uncomfortable with politicians nowadays, and, and we're seeing that in these results.
0: Tell me about that, because you can understand how if people are feeling anxious uh, and times are tough and you don't think the country is going in the right direction, it makes sense that the prime minister, the person in charge of the federal government and other premiers and other politicians, but certainly the prime minister would pay a price for that. I think we've seen in the polling over the past little while, we've seen the liberal numbers sort of fall off a cliff. And part of it, I think, and what was so interesting about your survey is that part of that that anxiety explains what's going on here. That this is almost not even about policies and whether this is the right housing policy or their policy is better than their policy. It's about an overall sense of dread. And when you're the Prime Minister and people are feeling that way, that's a bad, bad sign. But I was curious as to why the opposition leaders, and I think uh, Pierre Polyev might be surprised to find that he and Jugmeet Singh are neck and neck in this, um, both also pulled just a little bit higher than the Prime Minister. In other words, we have no faith in any of our federal leaders to solve any of these big issues. And that's I think politically that's an issue, too, going into an election, because who do you vote for then if you don't trust any of them?
1: It's a very difficult choice, and I don't think uh, there's going to be very many people who are excited by their options in the next election. Based on this, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau's trust has fallen far more than either of the opposition leaders has increased in trust. So other than just standing in the right place at the right time, they're really not doing much to win trust. Um, they're both tied at 32%. I don't think either of them is going to be bragging about Bruce McClellan's trust study and how they did in it um, with a 32% score. Um, you know, when we see some provincial premiers have been able to increase trust a little bit in the past. So it's not, it's not a guarantee that every politician has losing trust. There are things that can be done. I mean, people want to see fresh candor. They want to see um, authenticity They want to see politicians who get things done, who do what they say they're going to do and get results that help people live their lives. Despite all the frustration with politicians, our research consistently shows that about two thirds of Canadians believe in the role of government to make people's lives better. So we're not seeing some kind of anti-government reaction here. What we're seeing is people who believe in the purpose of government, who want government to help make their lives better, but are frustrated that politicians are not able to deliver on that. Housing is a perfect example where, you know, we have a a huge affordable housing crisis and fewer than a quarter of Canadians trust any of the three levels of government to solve affordable housing. And and then the private sector, real estate developers, their trust is also only at a quarter of Canadians. So between government and the private sector in housing, Canadians are really sceptical.
0: And the private sector, I guess, shouldn't be doing any cartwheels for the in this survey either. Because one of the things you found that I thought was interesting was that people are less inclined to want to listen to business leaders these days, as well. People are just angry, and people are angry. When you're angry, you sort of lash it at people who are you perceive to be in charge of things. And I think when you think of government and you think of big business, you think, okay, they're in charge. Like they're doing well here, and they're in charge. They're pulling the levers here, and I'm not liking the way the levers are being pulled these days.
1: Well, you're right about the business leaders. And, and uh, you know, we ask this question because sometimes there's an expectation that business leaders should speak out, take positions on issues, be it social issues or, or things like climate change. We're seeing a bit of a retrenching of that. And really, the topic that Canadians do want to hear from business leaders on are issues of economic growth and and prosperity and productivity, which, you know, are natural areas for them to comment on. And I think that ties back to the economic anxiety. Canadians are looking for people who can bring solutions that will help improve our economic standing. And they do expect business leaders to play a role in that. I think one of the challenges is that many business leaders, when they speak out, it's to criticize government and ask more from government, but not necessarily bring forward solutions. People right now are in a mood for solutions. They want tangible actions that that will help their comfort, and give them some economic security.
0: Did you see any, I mean, I think looking through it, there are little rays of sunshine in there as well, that this idea of economic security has grown so quickly um, over the past few years that it could easily dissipate as well a little bit if things such as interest interest rates begin to fall, if inflation falls, if food prices get a little cheaper. There will eventually be a new normal to all that we've seen in the last 24 months. We're just not there yet.
1: You're right, but you know when people ask me if I'm pessimistic or optimistic about trust in Canada, I am optimistic because in general, Canadians are a trusting bunch. And our research is not binary. So when I say that, um, you know, for example, 50% of people trust the Bank of Canada, it doesn't mean that 50% don't trust. We ask these questions with a seven point scale and we get a significant number of Canadians each question who choose four, which is basically sitting on the fence. That's very Canadian. It's very choose, Canadian. It's very Canadian to choose
0: four. I always choose four.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you could say it's very Canadian, but it's also a sign that they're willing to be persuaded if you give them some more reasons. Um, so, you know, when when I talk to corporate leaders, government leaders, I say, do what you know. Listen to what Canadians are looking for. T- listen to what their needs are. And then communicate more about what you're doing and and deliver on your promises. And you could build your trust score much higher. And, you know, when you talk about good news, our our trust index has found growing trust with charities in the last three years. So, you know, the not-for-profit and charity sector has seen an increase in their trust. And I think they're doing that by focusing on results, demonstrating that they're delivering tangible solutions. And being empathetic to the needs of Canadians, you look at an organization like the Canadian Red Cross, highly responsive, very empathetic, always there when there's a need. That's what people want, and that builds trust.
0: Yeah, the rubbers hit the road for for a lot of politicians, I gather. Uh, Bruce as always. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. It was nearly nine years ago now in March of 2015 that a deadly shooting during a drug robbery gone wrong would not only make headlines in Miami, where it happened, but here at home and around the world. Just weeks after she'd arrived in South Florida to take on the role as Canada's consul General with her 17-year-old son Jean and 15-year-old son Mark, Roxanne Dubé found herself at the center of a robbery and murder story. In a matter of moments, her eldest son Jean was dead and her youngest son was in police custody and we have breaking news right off the top tonight and one of the sons of the canadian consul general in miami is dead Another son is facing a murder charge tonight in connection with a shooting in Miami. Miami police chief Rudy Yanis telling CBS4 News that 15-year-old Mark Wabafia-Bazu and his 17-year-old brother, Jean, tried to rob some drug dealers yesterday. And during the robbery, which took place inside a home in Miami, there was gunfire. Jean was shot and killed. Now, one of the suspected drug dealers was also
4: killed. Police confirmed the teens were in their mom's car car which had diplomatic plates. Under Florida law, anyone who participates in a violent felony in which someone dies can themselves face a murder charge. No comment from the Canadian Consul General in Miami, Roxanne Dubé. We will bring you the latest developments as they become available.
0: Now, this all unfolded nine years ago now, back in March of 2015, and it made international headlines for obvious reasons. Here was a person who was representing the Canadian government, and her son, 17 and 15 at the time, take off in her car with diplomatic plates ostensibly, for the older son to commit a robbery. Now, what the younger son knew, of course, at the time, has always been um, something that has been disputed. Whether he could have even stopped it has often been talked about. A little bit of background. Dubé had been um, sort of climbed her way through the ranks of the Foreign Service. She was not from uh, a family that would necessarily introduce you to those ranks. She grew up in a rural part of Quebec. She became ambassador to Zimbabwe. Uh, she was divorced from the, bo- from the boy's father, Germano Waba bazu uh, originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo who she had met while studying in Ottawa, and she had been based in Ottawa for a while. Her eldest son, Jean, had some run-ins with the police, so it was figured that a move to Miami, this incredible opportunity to be consul General there, seemed like the perfect chance for a reset. Instead. At that point, Jean was dead. He had shot and killed an intended victim. Mark was in police custody, facing the possibility of spending decade decades behind bars. All of that in a bid to steal what was police estimated $4,800 worth of marijuana from a young drug dealer named Joshua Wright. Um, although he wasn't involved in the shooting, just to make this clear, Mark was charged with felony first-degree murder and a handful of other offenses. Florida authorities said the teen knew of his brother's robbery plan and was culpable in the ensuing crimes, and he faced 40 or more years in prison. That did not happen. It turned out, and we'll listen. hear this from his mom, that, that it, it, she managed to find a way, he managed to find a way to convince a judge and a courtroom that he was going to be able to be rehabilitated, and he has been. Nearly nine years later, mother and son, her surviving son, are back in Ottawa and by all intents and purposes, considering what happened nine years ago, back on track. Understandably, it has been a very difficult stretch for all involved. But Dubé has decided to put her story down in a book, a way of not only coming to terms with the horrific events of that day, but also asking herself that very tough question about what more she could have done to prevent all of this from happening, what more she could have done as a parent to understand her child her sons who are of course uh, both young and black and living up growing up in Canada and then in the U.S. at the time uh, this is a real soul searcher for her and she also hopes to offer parents of teens some lessons as well about parenting and responsibility and what it's like when everything absolutely falls apart for you Uh, positively the in a positive note the book is called Understanding at Last, and former Canadian diplomat and now author Roxanne Dubay joins me now from Ottawa. Thank you for your time tonight.
4: So happy for you to have me. This is a really,
0: I, I gather just from having looked through it, I mean, this was not an easy book to write, It, it but it's something that you felt like you had to do. Why was that?
4: You're absolutely right. It, it's not what I anticipated to write. I kind of knew I wanted to write, and I, I thought it was going to be... Easier in the sense of not involving my role as much as I discovered it it had to be. But once I walked through it, it became very clear to me that the principal reason why I wanted to carry this through was to be clearer on my responsibilities vis-a-vis my children's responsibilities in the tragedy. Because as you remember, they were quite young. They mm-hmm. were 18 and 15. And as I was doing this, I was so surprised by what I discovered in terms of my own disconnection with them as a parent, first and foremost, and then the fact that I had not seen them for all they were in their racial difference. Right, right that I I was discovering that truth and what I consider to be a path to the connection with my son today, I felt, wow, I need to share this.
0: Right. Understanding at last, right? I mean, the title always says so much about a book.
4: Right. And another reason, Ben, was, and it's a true story. A couple of months after the tragedy, I went to these big bookstores in Miami and I wanted to find the magic book that would help me as a parent with a child in crime. Well, there's nothing. And I know now why parents with a child in crime will not write about it because it's very difficult and it has to end and perhaps start with your role as the parent um, because there's no way a child will simply get into crime. And this was my biggest discovery, that my son did not fall into crime because of poor social influences, or just the teenage years, or just circumstances outside of our control. He chose crime because he was not well, to begin with. And he was not well, in part, because he had he was disconnected from the most important uh, people in his life including me
0: yeah and you talk about this i mean you had this you had this incredible career i mean you didn't grow up in a family that had huge ties to the diplomatic corps you kind of pay, blazed your own trail into what is a very coveted job i know you worked for lloyd axworthy back in uh, back in the day and found your way sort of in the in the in the foreign service that's not an easy career to embark on you must have been very driven and, 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 and very focused on it as well. You need to devote a lot of time to a career like that.
4: And I was. And in part, that's what I kind of expected uh, my my children to, to follow a path similar to me. But I was lucky. Uh, yes, I worked really hard. I invested and I had a, this curiosity and appetite for the world uh, at a very young age, but I also recognize now more so than then that uh, I was also propelled by forces as a white woman who was in the right circumstances and was able to do that. Whereas for my children, it was a different experience that they were going through.
0: Right. You 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 meet and marry uh, the the father of your of your children while you're still in university. Again, someone from a completely different background, very different from your background, but in some ways it it also encapsulated in some sense your, your idea of wanting to see the world and just have kind of a different life than maybe the one you grew up in.
4: Yes. And I was, I was in my 20s and I thought I could embrace every situation. He was uh, interesting as a person. He was very intelligent and still is. We're still in communication uh, vis-a-vis our son. And I fell in love and it's a very beautiful feeling. And and as I embarked on my professional career, I was going from success to success. And then he was struggling a bit. And, and that created some tensions into our relationships. And then once we have the children, that's when you see the test of do we come at it from a common parenting? And there were some tensions there that impacted our children. And I see it more clearly now. And I I realized as I revisited those years when I wanted to see more clearly how there too I did not see him for all that he was in terms of his racial difference. Yeah. And I ended up seeing my children like Oreo cookies, like black on the outside and white on in the inside, because they were the sons of Roxanne Bay. They were going to be succeeding. And so uh, according to the same path that I had taken where I left my family young and I, I just went alone in Ottawa and I didn't know anybody, and I I, may, I, I, was a, I was lucky in a way to be able to forge my way forward, very much thinking that I can I can do it all and not realizing that the circumstances of others around me may not be the same. For
0: news. The police showed up, surrounded the house, and you know, they, they dragged a young kid out. He was screaming something at his brother, you know, nasty words, and his brother, and the police tell him that, that he killed them. Now at six, one of the sons of a top diplomat in the Canadian government is dead. Her second son arrested in a drug deal gone wrong. The 15-year-old son is charged with felony murder in the shooting that left his 17-year-old brother dead. The teens are the sons of the Canadian Consul General in Miami. Roxanne Dubay is a former Canadian diplomat. Her book is called Understanding at Last. Roxanne, at, at this point, I mean, reading through you leaving Zimbabwe, heading back to Ottawa, and then getting this opportunity in Miami, and anyone who's been in Miami would always think, oh, Consul General, I think I even saw the office. Consul General in Miami, that must be a good job. Uh, and you arrived there, you must have arrived there with with hopes and expectations and with your two boys who are now teenagers at this point, and one eighteen, one fifteen, 115, and lots of hopes that uh, maybe this will be a good place to be and that everything will find itself in this new spot on the beach, so to speak.
4: Yes. And and I had, uh, I, just before we left, I mm. explained it in the book. Uh, Jean, my oldest son, had some um, issues with drug trafficking, so I was hopeful that we we were going to pull it out of there and put him in a really good school in the southern part of Miami in Pinecrest. And he was going to have a a new start. And he wanted it too. And for me, of course, it was a a great uh, professional opportunity. And off we went. And the narrative I was telling me in in my head at the time was, I'm a good mother. I'm doing this to help my son. It's going to put him on a better footing. Uh, He deserves this. I deserve this. And I cannot do any more than what I'm doing now. Uh, And I was putting it, in a sense, on his shoulder to say, okay, I'm the good mother here. I'm doing the best. And I was, uh, I loved it so much, loved him so much. And I put him the responsibility on him now. Okay. So you go off and you, you do good here. Uh, you in a perfect environment to, to do that, despite what people say about crime in Miami. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a full body of the city that is very thriving and very full of opportunities. Uh, and that's where we were, uh, not realizing that he needed help he was lost and and therefore two months later tragedy hit
0: two months it was that I remember I remember when it happened because it was again I've always thought of what it must be like for you because it was so public for you I mean oftentimes these situations for parents can be I mean you know people understand that it's that it's publicized but in your case it was so very public tell me about that night because I I know you've you've Described it in your own way, what happened that evening, where you were, and what and how you heard.
4: Well, I heard in... Uh, they left uh, at about one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and they said that they were going to go to a bookstore to buy a book, and then they were going to go to see a movie. And late at night, I got a call from our embassy in Washington saying well, something has happened. There seems to have been gunshot. Your sons may be involved. And I rushed like a crazy woman uh, to the main hospital in Miami. Uh, I made a fool of myself trying to find out about my son. And eventually somebody flipped me a little piece of paper and said, call this person, which was a detective. And he told me, Jean was dead. And I went to the police station. It was by then like, early in the morning, he informed me quite coldly uh, that uh, Mark was also uh, charged with first-degree murder. In the space of of about an hour, my life was turned upside down. And that's when I tried to describe in the book, in as objective a way as possible, the journey of a 15-year-old through the judicial system, through the prison system, and then through the boot camp system. And the whole way that the, the system is structured, which is flawed. And it, in, it wasn't the main goal of me when I wrote, but now I feel there's also something there for Canadians. You know, we have 4 million Canadians going to Florida every year. When I recall the story, people can see, in a sense, the parameters, the nature, and more importantly, the limits of what your Canadian government can do for you when you get involved with justice. And how, on the flip side, the culture, the system in Florida in particular, but also in the rest of the United States, is is very difficult to navigate through. I mean,
0: I, I don't even know where you begin to figure out what to do in that circumstance. I mean, I, having read through the book, I, I realized that what you did is that you realized, I don't think, I, I can't imagine you had coped with any of the grief yet, but you realized there was a son to protect, that you'd lost one, but there was one that needed your help now.
4: Right. And that was. This is what propelled me to 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 stay put and to carry and to go forward. Because I know now, Ben, when you have so much sadness, when you have so much guilt and regret, those are very powerful emotions that draw you down. And I, there were moments when I didn't tell my son, I didn't tell anyone, but I genuinely know what it is. When it's so dark, you don't know if you're going to make it. But having to defend Mark, I think, was a big motivation. And luckily, and this is the beauty of our story, is you see a 15-year-old become a young man and realizing, like, yes, I, w- I maybe I wanted to die when it happened, and that's what he told me when I saw him in prison. But then he goes to grief. he asks himself question why did my brother did this what is it for me what do i want with my life and then move on and on and on and grows out of it and then you also see the good of a defense system who can take on their plight uh, on their on their back if you will a young boy who they believed into so there's there's a story of hope uh, and that's why we both wanted it out to demonstrate that, that path. I, uh, it's the mother that is the happiest in the world because I get, I get to have my son back. And um, um, I would hide if I wouldn't say it's been difficult.
1: She will never, of course, get her older son back, shot dead while up to no good. The state and defense called the plea bargain for the younger brother a just result. This gives
5: him a chance to straighten out his life, and if he takes that chance, he will go forward. If he fails, he will be harshly punished. This is a young man
3: that does have significant redeeming qualities. Uh, unfortunately, made a horrible decision to hang out uh, with his older brother, who apparently was up to no good. We now
1: know.
0: Roxanne Dubé is a former Canadian diplomat. We're talking about her book tonight, Understanding at Last. It tells the very difficult story. And you may remember this story from 2015. In March of 2015, Roxanne Dubé was the recently appointed, or just had arrived in Miami to become Canada's consul general there after a long diplomatic career. With her were her two sons, Jean and Marc Um, She'd been married and divorced at this point. Her sons were in their teens. Jean was 18. Mark was 15. Jean had some trouble back in Ottawa with, with the law. A little bit, and uh, Roxanne figured that this trip, this move to Miami, would be a new beginning for all of them. Within two months, for reasons I guess still unknown and perhaps never, be, never understandable, uh, Jean was involved in a in a robbery that went wrong, and both he and the person that was being robbed were killed. Mark was in the car at the time uh, that Jean had driven there, and he too was arrested by police. And at this point, of course, Roxanne sees one son racked with guilt. They're trying to comprehend this. Incredible loss of the eldest Jean, and then from there, Roxanne, you tell this. I mean, I know for a fact that you basically invested every penny you had, just trying to figure out how you couldn't get Mark back out of there and back onto a better path. And this took all your energy for a while, right? When you were trying to figure out how he could be spared what looked like could it might be a very long prison sentence that would be essentially the end of his the end of life as you knew it.
4: Absolutely, and and it was the end of life for two reasons. For me, it was almost, and I talked earlier about how uh, I became a little bit emotional about how you really want to find a meaning in your life. And I I could see how serious this was. He was charged uh, with two murders and armed robbery. And every time we would go to court, the prosecutor, and eventually we found out that the judge was very much on her side were reminding us that he was facing a life in prison. And then we went through a system where police do lie. If it wasn't for a video, he would have been in prison today. That's my understanding of, of right. how serious this was. So for me, it was how can I possibly help a boy, I know, or teenager, let's say a teenager to you to your listener, to be to be fair to the fact that he knew that his brother wanted to go and steal marijuana. And I do say that in the book. Yes. But he was sitting in the passenger seat of the car. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have any means of communicating with his brother. He didn't take any action on the ground by way of any assault, any use of a gun or anything to that could possibly incriminate him. And yet he was charged those things as felony. And in the Floridian system, it's very serious because he was propelled into adult court, like in no time. Right. And so he was facing very, very serious circumstances. So for that, of course, you throw everything possibly at it.
0: I can't, you know, I, again reading your story, I can't imagine what that combination of 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 guilt, anger, despair, and responsibility must be like, all mixed into one, because you did have this other boy you did have mark to worry about and he he had witnessed this he lost his brother and must have been racked with guilt about what he could have done to stop it if only he had said something and then there's your situation and then you throw into all of that this idea of the disconnect of of a white mom with her with her with her kids who are living in a different reality perhaps even a, a much more acute different reality in this in a place like florida uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to understand. You know, a lot of people would have would, would have just everything would just would have worked out okay. And yet, you faced all these incredible challenges to try to get through. D- do you ever think that? I, I mean, I'm reading through the book, obviously, one says, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You were, you were a good mom, are a good mom.
4: Well, and I agree. I agree. The guilt and all of that that really pushed me down and almost got me to stay there. I don't want to minimize. <laughs> how and it's and it's a fear that really i've never experienced when you really are not sure you're going to make it but i think eventually what what did go through what made it happen for me and it was deliberate is once i figured out that there was something vis-a-vis my relationship with my own children that i had overlooked because mm-hmm. as a parent when it, things go don't go well we often think well why is he doing this? You know, he, he must know this is, this is hurting me. This is, and I realized that that was, I was angry at my oldest son, which I had not pinned down before I went to Miami. Then it made me feel, wait a minute here, Roxanne, you really need to figure out what is it that was your relationship with your children before you went down, not the reverse. And Put aside the other factors, they are way worth to look at in terms of the undue influences of older uh, young men who take teenagers on the right road. That's worth looking at. But for me, what got me out was, no, I'm going to focus on this because if I do this right, if I find the truth there, I'm going to be able to say to that woman, and this is what I say to that woman now. That Roxanne, at the time, with what she knew, she did the best that she could. And and the other piece that is also helping Ben is, of course, my son. Uh, and, and the fact that he, the connection with him now and what he's doing with his life. And this is why, this is what got me to the finish line with the book. Because there were many moments where I felt... What are you doing here, Roxanne? Maybe, you know, who do you think uh, is going to be interested in this? But what got me to the finish line is this. There came a time where I said to myself, this did not happen to us. This happened for us. And if I put my arms down and if I embrace it all and, and really take the time, to figure out what I had to learn with this, that if I can make sense of it to the others, there may be some some learnings there uh that could be helpful because as I said earlier, so many, so few parents write about crime.
0: So few okay. parents in your situation write about it, indeed. Because it's so because it's so tough to, to... To admit, although I, I mean, when we talk so much these days about sort of talking things out, one would assume someone in a situation such as yours, um, especially with with a with a son, another son to worry about and to raise, and to, another son to help make sense of this too, that talking it out would be the most beneficial thing. But I, you, as you pointed out, there there just isn't much out there for people in your situation. There's no there is no guidebook right to what you were living through.
4: No, I have a drawer in my in my room uh, in my in my desk. And I call it the, the drawer of lamentations because you should have seen the first versions of the chapters. I The world was all wrong and I was all right. And it, But that process of putting uh, words on paper, it really works as a therapy because you see the words on paper. And at some point you say to yourself, I cannot close that door by writing it this way. So you go and you search and you search and you search. Um, conversations with my son. And people sometimes say, hey, you're too hard on yourself in the book, or why are you just so much focusing on your role as a parent?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And my response is because in in when we talk about children and crime, in my view now, it would be my contention, is we don't talk enough about that part of it. Parents who have children who are isolating who are mutilating themselves, who are in some form of delinquence. I, I cannot overstate how helpful to me it was to say to myself, stop thinking about how you feel in this and start thinking about how you relate and how perhaps your son feel. And because that's when I discovered how he could not connect with me because I was angry if you were angry right. as a parent,
0: you were disappointed. Child, you were disappointed yeah. in him. Yeah.
4: And yeah. He knew, that.
0: he knew that. And he knew that.
4: That's yes, Right. But there was no path to put him to, to, to connect and for him to feel, okay, I need help. And for me to say, yes, I am there.
0: Roxanne Dubé is a former Canadian diplomat. Her book is called Understanding at Last. Roxanne, you, you, you've left Florida at this point. Mark has served what will be his time. He's been uh, found guilty of a much, he's, I think, pleaded guilty or found guilty of something much less serious. He's done the boot camp thing um, and then he's been allowed to come back to Canada. And you, this is sort of the new start for the two of you. Uh, but but with the life very much changed, but he very, he finds his way. He sort of ends up at Al- Algonquin College and you sort of, things feel like they're right again. Don't they? And that must have been—I don't know what the what the emotion would have been like for you, other than satisfying, I suppose.
4: Absolutely, and 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 he he. First of all, uh, before he left for Miami, there was the boot camp, which is a six-month, mm-hmm. very sports-driven. Uh, Uh, activity. And he, if he was here, he would say this was beneficial to him. Uh, That was the one good thing he had. And the other comment I would make is the circumstances in which he came back to Canada are extraordinary. Uh, If you read the book in terms of the the various uh, players uh, and a misunderstanding between the Floridian and national authorities, but now he's here. And the minute he gets here, within a day he announces to me that he converted to islam
0: interesting
4: imagine my, An- my another
0: challenge for you right to try to understand these these young men who are your boys
4: exactly so you go to where most parents would go who did you talk to in prison what were the influences it must have been this it must have been that and it turned out to be no there was nobody in prison it was a child who had looked at the Bible, who had looked at other things and said, What is, makes sense in my life? There has to be something deeper than what I have seen around me in jail. And so, with that discipline in his life, because Islam brings a lot of discipline and a sense of good, may I dare say, in peace, that is also what I discovered in that community. He then charted a path towards uh helping others. In the last year and a half, he's really started to realize, no, what I really want to do is social work. So he's, as part of a Islamic organization, he's building programs in the community in Ottawa, uh, with young people, um, and not so young people, but with the young people, it's about prevention of crime and it's about, uh, coaching young men to be young boy. To be better men because he notices there are um, quite a number of young people out there uh, that are not doing so well
0: and you're a grandparent so, and you're a grandparent,
4: and i'm a grandparent yes he uh he got married and i have a little girl uh janna and uh and it's it's immensely fulfilling
0: someone once told me that when it comes to a biography like that or an autobiography, there's no ending, right? Because it's life. So there is no way to end it perfectly, but you walked, must've walked away from that experience of having written this all down uh, with, with a thought about what it was that you'd gone through and where you are now. uh, Well, nine years later, right?
4: Right. And, and, and as I was saying earlier, I think once I realized there's no, kind of putting this aside and kind of continuing on a path, uh, even in the career, as I I had understood it, uh, although I was told and I I know it was true that they were more than happy to reappoint me as a head of mission elsewhere. I knew this was over for me because this had impacted us so much. So it took me on a different trajectory uh, around the issue of, doing my part as a member of an increasingly pluralistic society where we have people of different culture, of different origin. And I was, as you heard, in, uh, as you see in the book, I, I was granted the privilege to head a, the, the training institute of the Canadian diplomats. Mm-hmm. It really caught me to think about what I could do better, A, with my own personal story, B, with my professional career, C, with the additional uh, certification that I got to play my part in this. And this is what I do now.
0: And 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 just as when people walk away from this book, because I I think it's one of those stories that's difficult to read um, because of what happened, and it still resonates years later, even seeing the images of back then now, of course, your son, Mark, is on the cover of the book, and he looks so different now than he did as a boy, right, at 15, but and it reminds you how much time has passed. But when you, people read this, what would you like them to walk away from this reading of and what, walk away thinking about that night and you and your family and all that happened since?
4: Well, I would like them to 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 walk away with the cover of the book. The cover of the book is we go through difficult circumstances in life. Nothing is more important than our close family. And even though we may have been profoundly disconnected, here, here on the book of the on the cover you see a mother who is looking at her child. Seeing him, hopefully now, in all that he is, in his differences, in his commonalities, is connected with that child, and he is looking at the future, and that is the message that Mark and I wanted to transmit here: is that there is always, not always, but there is there can be hope, and and difficult circumstances. Um, that even tarnish your reputations. It's just a moment in life. It's you can do something with it and move on with it. And 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 that's what we're trying to do. And and are grateful for the opportunity to be able to tell our story. Roxanne, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Justice delayed is justice denied. That's a saying you probably heard over the years well today a federal court justice took the prime minister and the justice minister to task saying that they had failed canadians seeking timely justice how by letting the number of judicial vacancies reach a crisis point in this country they are currently 75 vacancies on federally appointed courts, such as the superior courts of provinces, federal court, and tax court of Canada. Um, in the spring of 2016, not longer after after Justin Trudeau first came to power, there were about 46. There are about a thousand overall. Now that's so. 75 of a thousand is a pretty big number if you think about it, especially when it comes to something as as crucial in your legal system as the courts. Um, The federal court justice, Henry Brown wrote in his decision that was released today, with the greatest respect, the court finds the prime minister and minister of justice are simply treading water. And with the greatest respect, they have failed all those who rely on them for the timely exercise of their powers in relation to filling those vacancies. And in judicial language, that's pretty harsh. Uh, joining me now is Nicholas Pope. He's a human rights lawyer with Hamid Law. He was involved Hamid Lars, who brought this application to the courts, and this was a decision that found found in their favor. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. Just to start at the beginning, so that listeners are clear with what vacancies we're talking about and why it's the federal government that's being, in the justice minister specifically, that's being um, being sort of targeted here. Uh, who are these judges, and where where what kind of law do
5: they do? So these judges do almost any type of law in the country. Uh, the vacancies we're concerned about are the superior court justices, and that involves uh, justices in the provincial superior courts, as well as in the federal courts. And those judges handle all sorts of matters from Certain family law matters to certain criminal law matters, certain civil suits like uh, torts and contract disputes, uh, to uh, especially in the federal court, being the judges who really oversee the executive branch of the government and whether they're complying with the law. How bad is the backlog?
0: Because I understand over time there's always been a bit of a backlog, but how much worse has it gotten of late?
5: Well, Back in the spring of 2016, there was only uh, somewhere in the mid-40s of vacancies so 40 positions, 40-something 40 positions vacant. Now, there's 75 as of February 1st. There was somewhere around 80 back when we filed this application. But it's sort of hovered around the 75 to 80 mark, which is about double the amount of vacancies as there, there was back in the spring of 2016. Do you get the sense...
0: Uh, or, or could you provide a sense of why it is that this has happened over time, why this backlog has, has grown uh, since 2016?
5: That's a great question, and it's one... That nobody seems to know the answer to. Interesting. Um, I don't know the answer to it. Other lawyers I talked to don't understand. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said that he didn't understand. He said that there's many candidates willing and able who are qualified. They've been satisfied with the quality of the appointments lately, uh, and there's candidates there. And so we we're hoping we would get the answer by filing this application because one of the key pieces of evidence that the government would have to present to rebut this application is some sort of justification for the delay. If they had said, well, there's no candidates applying or look, the process is taking longer because we're vetting them in this way and that way. And so we're waiting for that evidence, but it never came. The government presented zero evidence, zero witnesses. So we're still left in the dark.
0: Right. In fact, they challenged your application in a completely different way, not even going to the crux of, of, of the argument, or at least what you were trying to find out.
5: Yeah, their main argument was that the federal court doesn't have jurisdiction over this matter, essentially saying the courts don't get to control what we do here, which, of course, the court rejected. We have laws for a reason, and laws aren't optional. If the Constitution says the governor general shall appoint judges, and in reality, of course, that means by convention the prime minister and minister of justice, well, then that's not optional. And a court, their job is to enforce the law. So we don't know why there's been
0: this sudden surge in vacancies or this gradual surge in vacancies. Obviously, we know that appointing a judge does take a certain amount of time. Um, So listeners understand if you're sitting at home and maybe you don't have a lot of contact with the legal system, what impact does this have broadly on on all of us?
5: Yeah, well, anyone who needs to use the court system is going to be impacted by this. I'll tell you one situation we had at our law firm just shortly before filing this was that we were representing a woman who had uh, suffered workplace sexual harassment, and she'd gone through the whole proceeding. You know, There's a lot of steps in a court case, and it takes a long time, just inherently. Uh, and so a few years had gone by, and we'd finally got a hearing date for a week-long hearing. But And that was supposed to start on the Monday. And then it was right before the weekend before it, just a few days beforehand, that we got an email from the court saying, sorry, no hearing, because we don't have a judge that's available. And so it was canceled and postponed for many months. But of course, the client before hearing, you have to prep the client uh, for cross-examination and testimony, and they have to sort of rehash all of these traumatic incidents. And it's a very traumatic experience that they have to go through just to have the the trial canceled a weekend before it's supposed to happen.
0: And this would be something, uh, and that's an example that I'm no doubt it repeats itself. And this is right
5: across the country, right? Absolutely. And that's here in Ontario, Uh, the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court said that in BC, we're in quite a bit of a crisis, there's issues with criminal law, I'm not a criminal law lawyer, but there's the Jordan decision that says that cases need to go to a hearing within 30 months, otherwise, presumptively, uh, that denies the right to a timely trial, and then it gets stayed. And so that's happened. Actually, there's been quite a few judgments just over the past few months. From criminal courts saying they're staying these and by staying i mean the hearing doesn't happen the person doesn't the, the charges don't continue um, and they're not going to go to jail or get found guilty or innocent that for very serious uh even violent crimes these people don't get a hearing and so if they're innocent they're left in limbo a long time if they're truly guilty well then they're free because of that um and so we need more judges so that that doesn't happen because i think that affects us all to have people who are potentially could have been convicted criminals not get convicted and be free in our society right
0: and as you mentioned those who may be at least testing their innocence in front of a i mean it's their right to a speedy trial right more or less and that's being tested again i mean it 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 kind of boggles the mind that 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 the government didn't put forth any reasoning for this because i mean if they said listen you know through i don't know through the pandemic it was more difficult to vet or we've put in different criteria that we're trying out and we're we're working through the through the machinations of that you could understand that maybe we've sort of been reflecting on what the bench should look like these days and maybe but to offer no reason at all and then the decision came down today in your favor and um the federal court justice henry brown certainly wasn't mincing
5: any words no and I don't think he was pleased that no evidence was presented by the government. If they had presented some evidence and given some good reason why, we might not have gone ahead with this case. We might have received their affidavits, which is the the written testimony, and said, oh, okay, that makes sense. We're reasonable people. We understand the difficulties here. We're not trying to make trouble. Um, And we might have dropped the case if they had a a really good reason for it. But they didn't. They didn't have any reason. So... uh, I don't know what to say. I hope that they can. I hope that they have a reason. I hope they know internally what the reason is and can resolve it.
0: Nicholas Pope is a lawyer with Hamid Law. We're talking about a case that they brought forth uh, in federal court that was decided upon today, a federal court justice, Henry Brown, ruling that the government needs to pick up the pace when it comes to filling judicial vacancies on the superior court and federal courts across Canada. This has a big impact on a whole slew of cases. And it really is the whole notion of justice delayed can be justice denied uh, in this case. Uh, Nicholas, when you walk away from this, I mean, I guess you got what you wanted um, in terms of you got a response to this or at least a decision from a federal court, ironically, by someone appointed by, by the very people that you're pursuing here. But it, it didn't feel like that. I mean, I guess the justice minister said, yes, we're we're going to take this very seriously. We'll study this. I think they promised they were going to hire judges faster a while back, and maybe they have been. But did you get any solace as to, did you get any light at the end of the tunnel today, I guess, is the right, right question?
5: I think this is the next step. I'm hoping it's the final step. The chief justice of the Supreme Court said a letter last spring in May telling the prime minister and minister of justice, we really need to fill these positions. Please fill these positions. Um, and that's that's fairly unheard of. So that was a big deal. And I'm surprised the government didn't act on it. So now this is the next step. We don't just have a letter. We have a declaration from the court saying this needs to be done and it's their legal duty. And so I trust that the government will follow that and we'll take that very seriously. But if not, the court indicated... That uh, while while it didn't set specific timelines right now, it, it essentially invited, or actually I think explicitly invited us to reapply to the court if things don't change in a reasonable amount of time, and that it may... Uh, specify specific timelines and, and maybe uh, provide an order with a little bit more teeth. And I think this is appropriate. I really appreciated the thoughtful analysis of Justice Brown um, with some of the thorny issues that, that were in the decision with jurisdiction and so on. But the, the nuanced uh, order, I think, was a good example of way that, the way that the courts can have a dialogue with the executive branch. And so this is the next step in it. If within, say, the next six months to a year, We don't see these numbers going down to about 40 vacancies or less, then we'll be prepared to bring another application and seek an order with a bit more teeth. And there's strong cues from the judge that uh, he would be willing to grant something a little stronger if things don't change. Right.
0: I mean, clearly, you don't want to be handing out, you know, handing out positions on the bench to people on the street necessarily. So you don't want them to rush through this. But obviously, when the when when the justice looked at, at the weight of all the evidence that was presented, I know there was no evidence as to why these vacancies aren't being filled, presented by the federal government. But clearly, the belief is that this can be done in this time frame and still
5: maintain the integrity of the courts. Absolutely. We have positions that were filled with only two days vacancy. And in our evidence, we presented uh, dozens of positions that were fulfilled uh, that were filled in less than 90 days just in the last few years. So they can do it. And often judges give six months notice before they retire. So there really is no reason why you can't fill a position in just a couple days of vacancy. Yeah, I'm still
0: puzzled as to why this is happening, because I could, I, there must be a, you know, there were obviously, there could be any number of reasons as to why it is, but the fact that they didn't present any, just legally speaking, without getting into maybe speculating about about tactics or motives, just legally speaking, why wouldn't you present evidence to back up your, your issue to a court like this in, in the face of what you were asking for?
5: I wish I knew. I, I really don't. I would, yeah, I would be speculating if I if I guessed at their legal strategy there. It, it really surprised me when there was no evidence presented. Right. And in the meantime, of course,
0: uh, you know, as as this week in court goes on, you're faced with these same issues that you were talking about uh, when you when you first filed this application. I mean, it was eighty then. It's I think seventy nine, seventy five now. Uh, there's still as many vacancies as when you set off on this process because there were too many vacancies.
5: Yeah, we filed this in June. I was hoping that just filing this case might be a little bit of a warning to the government to get on it, but apparently not. So I guess, uh, yeah, it had to escalate. We had to get a decision and hopefully this will be the final step and we'll we'll see some change here.
0: Well, I guess we'll check back in uh, maybe in six months time or so. Nicholas, thank you so much. My
5: pleasure.
3: <laughs>
0: Aaron Road is with us this half hour, research wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Alaska Science Center. She studied polar bears for a long time, amongst other bears. We're talking about a new study that came out today that tracked 20 polar bears living in and around Churchill, Manitoba, just to find out how they were adapting to life on land, to figure out what it is because there's less sea ice and less months in which they can hunt on sea ice, which is really their hunting grounds, how they adapt to life on land. And it turns out, of course, perhaps unsurprisingly, they just don't get enough calories uh, when they're on land. 19 of the 20 bears that they surveyed over three months lost weight. Um, Karen, when you look at what this means as, as we move forward, I guess you said it was really important to figure out To figure this data out now, because it gives us a bit of a window into what the future might look like, it feels like um, there's a law of diminishing returns for them here, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, you know, there are 19 recognized polar bear populations and Western Hudson Bay population is the one that we were studying um, for this project. And You know, there they really have limited options because um, the time that the bay is ice-free is getting longer um, and they are on shore longer. So I think, you know, this information is important because it does help, you know, get a sense for what what may happen in the future and kind of what, you know, the situation is for bears that are going to be on shore in that area. Um, We can also use the information that we collected there to apply to other populations. So, in other parts of the Arctic, polar bears mainly live out their entire year out on the sea ice. But as sea ice loss has occurred in those populations, um some bears are starting to summer on land, whereas none had in the past. And that has been increasing over time. So the proportion of bears in the population coming on land has gotten higher. And the amount of time bears are staying on land in those other areas are also staying on shore longer. Um, So the data that we collected in Western Hudson Bay, we can use in other parts of the Arctic to kind of specify to the different circumstances bearers face in different areas, to at least get some idea for how quickly are things likely to change? When do we think there might be impacts on their reproduction and survival? You know, and that can help with kind of local management um, decisions and um, conservation decisions.
0: Yeah, because clearly in this case, I mean, we know that that sort of slowing down the pace of of climate change would would make a big difference. I, I don't suspect that might happen in the in the very near future. In in this case, what are some of the other things that can be done? Do you think to try to see if we can't stem this somewhat, or are we simply in in sort of that observation and adaptation period of of, of your research?
2: Well, I think certainly, you know that bears are spending more time on land puts them in closer proximity to people, you know, in communities and, you know, where I work a lot in Alaska, there's also oil and gas activity and development um, in polar bear habitat. So, you know, a lot of the information we're trying to provide is to give some sense for how quickly are things changing? You know, how much longer are bears going to potentially be on land in 10 years or 20 years? Um, And then when do we think there might be some effects on their health Because both of those things affect, um, you know, how much interactions people may have with bears, but also as bears become nutritionally stressed, there is some evidence that nutritionally stressed bears, you know, behave differently in human with humans um, during interactions. So we're trying to provide all that information to help, you know, prepare communities and, um, and other people who work or live in polar bear habitat, um, you know, so that they can plan and, you know, hopefully minimize negative interactions that are also important for people and for bears. So that's, you know, one way that we can try to, you know, other than impacting sea ice loss, that's other ways that we can try to help um, protect bears.
0: Well, Karen, uh, I thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for walking me through that study again. If you have a chance to go see the images uh, online, they're they're quite fascinating. But thanks so much uh, for that. I appreciate it.
2: Yes, yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about our results.